conduct some research. Let's engage and survey those black men who don't rape, and let's talk to them about why it is they don't rape. And those are the those are the models. Those are the responses that we need to use, and then integrate that. That could be part of an entire restorative justice piece. Because you can do it with white men as well. Right? You, can you can do it with white men. It's a strength based right. approach to it. It right? sure is. It sure is. So I have thank you. So I have Pat, then Nikisha, then Tracy, then Ahmed, and just um, for folks to know, we're going to go till about um, eight of eleven. I'll give you guys each a chance to say like a final word, and then I'll wrap this up and just say a few words about next steps. And we'll get those of you who are leaving out of here by eleven, as promised. I know a bunch of folks are staying for the film screening after. Uh, um, well, I just wanted to say take a collective deep breath um, <laughs> because um, I am embarrassed to say that I've been in these kinds of conversations for 30 years now and I feel like, no, I ain't no badass. That woman over there is a badass and all of you are, you know, um, uh, because it's embarrassing to say you've been doing this work for 30 years and what do you have to show for it? What has changed in the work that we've done? But I will also say, so when you look at the statistics, when you look at the numbers, they actually really haven't shifted so much, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, but I also then say, wait a minute. There's a lot of work that has happened over the past 30 Absolutely. years yeah. that actually allows us yeah. this moment in time mm -hmm. to be where we are. Absolutely. And I really recognize and really want to honor that, um, as well as really honor, you know, really the critical work that's happening now where adults really do have to step aside and really listen, right? Um, I love, you know, that. Um, we're really beginning to talk. It's, it's a different conversation mm -hmm. that we are having. It's not the same. There are elements of the same conversation that we're having, absolutely. But there are already the, you know, the evolution of nuances that I think really are so critical. And I just really want to say that, you know, out loud. Um, I love that we're really paying attention to assets and not just the problems, mm -hmm. and really beginning with that and saying, wait a minute, you know, actually, there are a lot of great assets. And I think, because this is also a room that's supposed to be talking about philanthropy as well. And I recognize, too, that within communities of color, we've never recognized fully, you know, the full assets um, and philanthropic assets, you know, that communities have brought to bear, mm -hmm. you know, throughout to have that survival that we're talking about. It's not the money that's poured in from outside. It's the resilience and the strength internally. And it's the informal, you know, mm -hmm. money that gets passed around. You need that. You know, that family's having a problem. We're going to all pull together and do that. That's what makes these communities survive. That's the philanthropic legacy and activism that we really should be applauding. Um, so I just wanted to say that, you know, out loud as well. And I, and I think about um, this notion of when you're saying, you know, that it, it, it's not um, an either or. We always talk about, we, we always think in either or, black and white terms. You know, but the reality is so much more nuanced. And the reality is that what happens to you really impacts me. Yes and no. We still have to really strongly make that case. But I just, that's what I hear in the conversations that you, that you are, are having around the sense. I, I like to talk about shared destiny. And really having that concept of shared destiny. What happens to you really impacts me, right? You know, but that's 
still sort of a new thing that I think we have yet to sort of really live into. Because to me, that also relates to public will. Because we know that no matter how many statistics you throw out onto the table, no matter how many horrific, you know, kinds of things that you can say about whatever it is, that that doesn't change public will. So what is, you know, what, what, what do you do? And, around this and how do you really change public will? And I think, you know, too, as a funder who has been funding, you know, Neil and I were having this conversation earlier about, um, you know, um, what what money can buy. Actually, I, I, I just lost my, my train of thought on this. <laughs> was it the that's, homeboy that's industry the piece? Was it the investment in homeboy industries? That the piece? investment yeah. in, um, you know, in this work. Oh, I lost my train of thought completely. That goes with the number of years around the table. I know. So, but I just, I just really wanted to thank everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank um, my name is Akisha Lowe, I'm a senior strategist for safety at the Biz Foundation for Women. Um, and so some of you know, if you've been involved in work for, for a number of years, that our work um, for about the last five or so years has focused on ending child sexual assaults. And so as I hear you guys lifting up, um, as we enter this conversation, thinking about campus sexual assault, so like, you know, later teen years. Um, but I was wondering if you have done anything, if there's any research um, in the work that you're doing, because you've named black women and girls, right? Yeah. So we often um, conflate the two um, and sort of miss what happens for, to, to black young women, Latina young women at girlhood, um, and that um, assault happens there too. So is there any um, research that you have linking, um, you know, the, I think the, the, the prevalence of assault? Um, at different stages of the lifespan. Um, I'm thinking also, Barry, you mentioned earlier in your remarks that um, we're dealing with uh, sort of a cycles of violence, right? Um, and so that's coming up for me. And I'd love to know if there's any linkages there, if there's any correlation um, between sort of where women position themselves when they get to a college campus yeah, and beyond, yeah. given any issues that might exist. And yeah. there's a cultural nuance to that as well. Yeah. I mean, really quickly, and I, and I can also share um, some information with you via email. One of the things that we know, you know, statistically, is that women who have been sexually abused become more and more at risk for being sexually assaulted yeah. later in life. And so that, there's that correlation. And so you can only imagine, right? And then we have, certain, we have statistics that, which I can't, that I can't wrap my head around. Yeah. When you think of community, in 2004, the National Black, Health, um, um, Black Women's Health Imperative found that 40% of women reported uh, um, sexual assault or, or, or you know, coercive sexual contact by the age of 18. Mm. We started doing a survey in 2011, and right away we discovered in Black Women's Blueprint that that number was closer to 60%. Wow. And yet when you look at your, your um, research on college campuses, you know, the scientific research, you know, not just community-based organizations going out doing participatory action research, it, it, it says that only 14% of college students on historically black colleges and universities report sexual assault, 14%. So the disparity is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So yeah, I think this is worth conversation, it's worth analysis, it's worth a, a, a whole entire sort of funder <laughs> But um, <laughs> But the issue of sexual abuse. <laughs> But starting younger and really looking at, 
you know, the impact of child sexual abuse, I think, is, is, is really critical. And part of our gaming work is around that, engaging parents in being able to, be <coughs> to, to intervene at that early stage. I just would say as an intersection, one of the things that we do is rely mm -hmm. on colleagues like Farah and others when it comes to statistics and data. Evaluation drives everything that we do. We logic model everything that we do. It's a part of our process, our evaluations. But, but we stay away from talking about statistics in terms of a, a strategy for engaging men. Because the first thing we're going to do is debate them. So it's just it's like me talking about my daughters. Well, you do it. I'm not a survivor. You know, I've been, my parents been together 56 years. I, my dad would hold my hand crossing the street now if I let him. So I, 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 come, I, I come from a very a very traditional kind of square place. And if I go into a room of men and start talking about one in four or 40 percent, or some, men will start doing our man thing, and we'll start debating it. And we'll lose all the time on the reality of what those statistics and that data and evaluation really are saying. Um, but you know, again, those are the moments where, as I said to Pat earlier, we as men can stop rape. We get to work with boys and men the way that we do because of a lot of the work that's being done yeah. here. We're not policy people. We're not statistics people. Um, we're primary prevention, and it allows us to be strategic about how we build relationships with men. I was going to say there was a Jennifer the Charles Wilkinson in the Times. I thought it was the Times yeah. 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 Times. Yeah. 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 Really disheartened to hear what Ahmed said. I'm a Williams alum, and so um, who's actually been fighting with the organization or the college now as an alumnus. Um, I'm Tracy from Sexual Health Innovations, um, and it's really disheartening because there's a whole cohort of alumni who are trying to ask the college and force the college to change, and we're being told the students need to ask for it. Well, the students are asking for it, and they're not being listened to, and the way that, um, so at SHI we're building Callisto, which is a college sexual assault reporting system, and we're building it based on the input of college sexual assault survivors. Every decision we make is made because of feedback that we receive from survivors through interviews and focus groups and surveys so that it actually meets their needs. And when we tried to sell it that way to schools, we were told that they don't care. And they ignored our phone calls and they ignored our emails, but to go back to what Neil was saying earlier about liability, that's what's changed a lot of the tune. When we talk to them about how Callisto is going to help reduce their liability of having accused students who are angry that they're being suspended come back and sue them because it helps survivors preserve and retain evidence that will better strengthen their case, suddenly the college is wanted in. And because we framed it as a conversation around liability. And unfortunately, liability is the way that now we're getting into campuses. But if it means that the survivors are getting That's access right. to this yeah. tool and these resources yeah. that are going to help them make the better decision and the best decision for themselves, um, because walking into the Title IX coordinator's office might be too scary or going to the dean's office or campus security isn't an option, like this is at least an option that they have where they can learn about what that process is going to look like, save that evidence, and be able to then down the line, if they choose to report, go ahead and do so, but feel more prepared in that process. And the fact that we were trying to empower survivors to be better about it, it was, oh, well, are, are our Clery numbers going to go up? Mm -hmm. And again, it went back to the liability, and we were like... Why, like, that's it's absurd that that's what they're focusing on. But as soon as we changed it to helping to reduce their liability of lawsuits from accused students, 
then suddenly the game changed. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to like say like the liability, unfortunately, is the way that I think a lot of a lot of the programming that exists is going to get into the schools and be able to give survivors and students the resources that they need. But unfortunately, that's the way that it has to be framed until we see a strong cultural shift in the way administrations view campus sexual violence. Absolutely, meet them where they are. I yeah. mean, we'll yeah. take the win wherever we can get it. <laughs> yeah, I guess really quickly, um, just as a direct response. Um, uh, you know, I actually served as student chair of the Honor and Discipline Committee at Williams. Um, and for a long time, that committee, the discipline side, heard sexual assault cases. Yeah. Which, when I assumed chair, I was like, this is like ridiculous. Um, and we had to go through training to actually hear and offer um, our opinions on what we thought the case was. So it's a lot of victim blaming and just a lot of errors, just in general. Um, and actually, um, in the last year, they, they stopped that process partially because of the work of um, SHI and also um, Megbosong. But anyway, I was going to respond to Nikisha's question about uh, cycles of sexual violence. And you, you raised the question about uh, black women and girls. But I think we also need to look at it from the perspective of black men and boys, right? To think about how many harm doers are actually victims or survivors themselves. Um, because so much of what, at least at Black Women's Blueprint, what I've been observing is that many of the men who come forward as a harm doer or an accused party, right? Many of them have actually been assaulted yeah. themselves. Yeah. So even their conceptions of uh, love is rooted in violence. Yes. Absolutely. So yeah. we actually need to go much deeper and like sit with, and I think the Charles Blow article is perfect. Mm -hmm. um, it's really clear and it kind of sets the stage of like, what does it mean to have cycles yes. of this stuff in our communities. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last piece, kind of thinking about uh, black men and boys' resistance to being involved in anti-rape activism. Um, question that I get is like, in what ways does the contemporary anti-rape movement resemble or mirror the anti-rape movement from the Reconstruction era in terms of who is at the face and in terms of who is being funded into prisons? And I think that alone. Um, so if you think about prisons and lynching, not, that yeah. isn't to suggest yeah. that the white victims who come forward are lying. That's not what, what I'm saying, or that they're participating in rape frameups, which is the historical term. But we actually do need to sit back and think about the face of the movement mm -hmm. and who that deters and who does that trigger and who does that re-traumatize. Because for a lot of black men and boys, they are refusing to even talk about these things for mm -hmm. fear that they will be arrested or murdered. Uh -huh. So I think that's just something yes. I wanted to kind of put out. Uh, I can be very brief. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to build on something you said, Farah, um, and, and actually something you just said. Um, and perhaps even be so lucky as to tie, tie in a few of our broadest themes, um, which is your, your um, suggestion around let's look at the fellows who are not raping. Let's figure out what's going on there. And I, to build on that, um, I think we have to ask not just what they're not doing, but what more could they be doing? Because if we know that really... It, Ultimately, it's a minority of people, whether it's in fraternities, which is where Breakthrough is piloting some work, um, or on campus or in general, it really is still a minority of people who are doing this. But it's a majority of people who are upholding and perpetuating the culture yeah. that allows them to continue, that creates the impunity. I yeah. mean, there's Neil, you know, I'm sure there are studies mm -hmm. um, around young men who say they would rape if they knew they could get away with it. Yes. And I don't know how that breaks down demographically, but we know that, right? So, and I think what we've learned here, or what, what's been um, exposed here, is that there are a whole lot of reasons and influences and barriers and all those things that um, might uh, prevent someone from intervening 
that might prevent someone, you know, that might make someone, um, you know, extremely misogynist but not a rapist, um, that might make someone not at all misogynist and the best guy in the world but not a speaker-upper, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what, so that's where I think, and we need to look at what are the cultural factors, what are the racial factors, what are the class factors, what are all of the factors that might, that might make all those people, men and women and everyone else, not do more. Um, and that's and when we can get those everyone everyone in the, in their own communities and then together um, to overcome those individual or or cultural or community barriers and do more, then we can drive the culture change that we need, um, so that we may not stop every single serial rapist, but we can create a culture where all of that stuff is unacceptable, um, and then I think we'll really um, be at the next phase of what we all can do. So I just want to turn to the two of you and ask if you want to take a moment, if you, if you don't have it, you don't need to, but if you want to take a moment to just sort of give us a final reflection or a thought or a charge to us, um, here's your moment, and then I will say a few words about our next steps here. Wow, I think uh, we said a lot today, right? And I, I forgot who said it, but who said that, you know, was it you, Pat, who said breathe, right? Mm -hmm. I think after all of this, we do need to breathe. <laughs> you know, integrate and incorporate all of the wonderful things we've heard around the table. Honor every single person, funder, uh, um, activist, you know, Melinda, you know, everyone. My partner activist here, you know, we work together in the trenches, you know, with OVW, and you know, we're working at different levels because we're also working at a federal system, mm -hmm. which is very different from the work that we can do, you know, in community with like uh, a progressive sort of like foundations and philanthropists. And so, you know, it's really, I, I, think, I think that as we, we, we should honor all of these things, and then I think the next step is really to think about how each and everything that was said here, and I think it was, was it, it may have been, doc it's, it's documented, and really come up, I think, with a blueprint or some type of strategic or work plan that we can then all have access to. Because a lot of rich information was shared today around you know, how, how young people can be involved, around how we can engage black men or men in general to think about and then to move further than talking about why it is that they don't rape, but to think, to think further about what, what it is they can do. You know, to, to, to look at the intersections and look at how community organizing at the campus level can look and center these intersections and the lives of students of color so that they become an inherent part of that community organizing. So it's, it's the charge I think for us is what do we do with all of this information next so that it doesn't just stay here and it wasn't just a wonderful and rich conversation but we can each take pieces of it and we can go and we can work. So that's it. I'll just say real quick thank you to NEO's leadership at your all's vision that helps recognize what is the investment that those of you who are in philanthropy can make. And so Pat and I have in the length of time that we've been, you know, since I've been at Men Can Stop Rape, you know, Pat has been in some way supportive of our work, whether it be through actual dollars or feedback or leadership. And so I think it's a continuation of that mm -hmm. and recognizing for us, our Healthy Masculinity Action Project is not just a strength-based approach to engage men but it really does provide men from different disciplines to raise up 
and see and help us understand where they can be involved in this for a lifetime in a way which is sustainable beyond just dollars being thrown at something. And so I think it's the opportunity to build on uh, NEO's leadership again and what our mm -hmm. next steps can be collectively. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, I agree with Pat and Thera that breathing is good. <laughs> and uh, we, should, we should take a moment to breathe. I want to um, thank you know the two of you um, and ask everyone to thank the two of you for just such a rich and stimulating <laughs> Dylan and yes. Zoe and Ahmed yes. for their contribution. <laughs> and I want to thank all of you, um, not just for coming today and enriching the conversation, but for the work that you do, which is driving this um, critical movement and will continue, and um, which we at NEO are a part of wanting to do everything possible to support. Um, so our next steps, just quickly so you know, first of all, um, this session will be taped. We will be, now I'm going to say the wrong words too in terms of technology. We'll be both uploading it and, um, and um, also creating podcasts um, of it that um, will be available. Um, in your folder, there's information about how to get in touch with um, Neil and Farah. There's also the briefing sheet bottom lines from our first briefing, which again gives you the names of the student um, leadership activist organizations that um, you can get in touch with as well. And there's a compilation of research um, that our colleagues at Breakthrough gave us that looks at the research <coughs> we've done on attitudes um, with uh, frat boys and men um, that's driving their work as they're thinking about models they're taking to campuses, um, which is very useful, I think, as well. Um, we. Uh, have been excited and privileged already at NEO to be being able to be holding these kinds of conversations, to be providing some capacity building supports and trainings um, for groups in this space, um, to be partnering with folks like the Hunting Ground in, in um, being a vehicle for collecting resources that come from that film and then granting them out to the field. To the field. And we are eager and um, clear and looking forward to strongly engaging with our other funder peers in creating some kind of a collective or collaborative or aligned funding entity to be able to really increase dollars for this space and think collectively about how we can grant them out along the lines that Vera was talking about of working with advocates in the field strategically to be thinking about what's the blueprint for really supporting the ecosystem of groups across the dimensions we've been talking about in sustained ways because we know that this is not going to be an issue that's solved anytime soon. Um, and so we're committed to that and we'll be following up with all of you here um, to think more deeply about that. So with that, let me thank you all for coming. And um, for those of you that are staying for the film, go to the bathroom. Well, anyone can go to the bathroom. <laughs> but, um, and yeah, and uh, you know, some of you will leave, some of you will stay, and we'll sort of do part two in a moment. But thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.